Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And joining me today as a special co-host is Ali Sherry. Welcome, Ali. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Thanks. I'd also like to welcome Sharon Lever, Vice President and Group Director of Forrester. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you. It's great to be here. So today we're going to look hard at the future role or even the present role of organizational design as we see organizations really struggling with adapting to new market realities. So I want to start off, Sharon, with a simple idea, which is when we look at some of the things like customer experience, digital transformation, other things, what we constantly see is that those big efforts that are that have high expectations on them to change the trajectory and destiny of the companies are stalling out. And the evidence continues to point that that existing organizational structures and all that inertia that that infers is underpinning a lot of that. Can you comment on sort of that dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. This, this is um, the most common challenge that we hear from our clients um, when they're going through major transformations. Um, it's, it's not the technology. It's not the processes. It's, it's not um, understanding what the path forward should be or what the future state should look like. It's how do they move their people? How do you get the buy-in from the organization? How do you transform and get people to work in a different way um, and value different things in an organization? And, and that's just hard to do. It's not that they can't see the future of what that should look like per se, but it's just hard to change people. People don't change very quickly. Yeah, I was with some clients in, in Asia and we're sort of commenting that the speed of an idea is very fast and the speed of technology is fast. The speed of people is frustratingly slow. And there's a whole sort of conversation that continues to point uniquely at culture, which is important, but culture assuming that the organizational structure stays fixed. So culture changing nothing else kind of thing. What I continue to hear back is it's both of them at the same time. And often culture can only be really affected in tandem with some form of organizational change, whether that's leadership or the structure itself. It just seems like one can't happen without the other. Yeah, I would I would say that that's true. I think of when I think of it, I think of all the people things, sort of all the people related levers that you have at your disposal to pull on, which is your culture, your leadership, the structure of your organization, the talent, how you hire them, who you hire, how you develop them. All of those sort of work together, even even metrics, right, because it affects how people get paid and um, how they're incented. So all of those work together. And what's interesting is you tend to see people either glom onto one aspect of that instead of the whole thing. So we'll see lots of companies actually say, yeah, we're going to change our culture and they'll go um, hole in on culture transformation and focus on that. But to your point, nothing else is changing. Or they'll say, well, everything comes back to metrics. So we're just going to go in and change all the metrics and look at every role and switch around the metrics and focus on behaviors or what have you. Um, and you see just as many companies think that the panacea is to change the org structure, um, just move boxes around on a hierarchy, and that will magically change everything. And of course, it, it, it doesn't. Um, it's much more complex than that. Um, and I think most leaders know that sort of in their gut. And so it causes another problem, which is they stall. They wait to move on all of the people-related stuff because it's not easy. It's, it's soft things. It's, it's not um, black and white. It's not hard and fast, and they don't necessarily have a perfect roadmap of how to do it right. It strikes me that one of the key premises of organizational design is stability, predictability, mm -hmm. risk management. And 
sort of that cautions you from making big, hard changes as you put a lot of things in motion at the same time, which screams of risk. I think the irony of the moment is that that same stability can also be interpreted as rigidity, rigidity to changes in the market. And so what we're seeing sometimes, I think, is organizations that are slow, rigid, culturally tone deaf, and have these silos that are entrenched political, you know, tribes that you can move the pieces on the board, but you're moving the entire tribe around. Right. And you're still stuck with hierarchical silos that obey the functional logic, but they're still apart from the market. So that same stability is rigidity just on the flip side of the coin. That's right. And, and you know, most organizational designs today are optimized for stability, for predictability, for control. Um, and quite frankly, the leaders in most organizations have grown accustomed to that and, and feel safe with that level of control. So to get behind the idea of completely blowing that up um, is a really risky bet for them, which they've been trained through their entire career to not make those bets. Um, they are rewarded for control and stability and sure. delivering. And so it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough call. Those are the very ladders that they climb to get where exactly. they are. They, those, exactly. are good, those are good ladders. So it almost feels like where we are today is that departments have built up these political entities with walls so high just to have them, uh, just to protect them versus having them to serve a purpose. Well, it's funny you say that because there's a part of me that thinks that organizational design is there to protect the organization. It is not there to serve the purpose to serve the customer. It sort of is the best protective measure against keeping things the way they were and keeping the politics whole. I mean, to your very point, Ali, which is it, it keeps the thing whole and protected. Mm-hmm. It's just one of the ironies of it. Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to leave the impression that every leader out there is just creating their own individual fiefdom and is trying to win for themselves and not for the organization as a whole. I, I, you know, we're, we're not in the Stone Ages. I, I think we've moved beyond that and evolved that. And and there is more of a sense of wanting to deliver on a purpose. It's just that these structures are so ingrained in the organization that the risk of toppling that is just too great for most leaders to really get behind, um, as an individual at least. So it appears that that leaders are noticing what's going on here and they're sniffing around the edges, trying to figure out how do they delve in here without taking too much risk. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's a lot of things out there um, that they're trying to digest and understanding aren't working in their organization, right? If you look at things like... um, them being able to deliver amazing customer experiences, which we know is so important for driving success, Um, the ability to shift to become more digital, Um, all of these things they're trying to go after, and it's hard in the existing structure. So they're trying to figure out how to do that, but as we we mentioned, not wanting to make the big full-fledged, okay, we need to completely change the way we do business and, and how we're structured internally. So they're doing things like, creating new C-level executives, right? Chief digital officer being the perfect example there. Um, Not changing the other roles and the other functions, but sort of overlaying them and trying to give them some responsibility. Um, Obviously, so many companies have created customer experience groups within the organization. They may sit in marketing, they may sit in operations, they may sit in customer service, but they're fundamentally groups that are trying to change the customer experience across the organization and influence them the problem is that they don't, in most cases, have really the authority or the clout to do so. 
Um, so they're creating these little, uh, you know, different aspects or different pieces, but they're overlaying them or they're stick trying to insert them in the middle of this pretty structured organization and great intention, but it's just not, it can only get them so far. You know, it might be able to fix some things, um, fix some things that are really bad. It may be able to move a couple steps forward, but ultimately if you're trying to do an enterprise-wide transformation, tactics like that aren't going to get you there. Sharon, it does strike me if you look at CX, CX tries to mimic the customer. It's very horizontal. It sort of spans the entire company, and yet silos are very vertical. They hit different pieces of the organization. So that's one point of disruption. And digital transformations speak to they need to become a digitally first or digitally, digitally oriented company. It's a different way of operating. So this can't be done at the periphery of their business. It can't be done experimentally. This is getting at who they are as a company. You know, we, we as a team stepped back and looked at what are the possibilities for new, if we, if we agree with the premise that the existing organizational design logic has aged out, kind of what's next? If we looked at some of the more far-reaching designs based upon dynamics that we felt were significant in their making and their ramifications and durable, meaning they're going to last a while. And we sort of came to this shape-shifting logic. And I, what we're going to do now is we're going to go through what does it look like? What does it act like? And so I'll start and, and you guys jump in, which is the first one is the organizations will be inherently smaller. Whereas to your point earlier, Ali, the organization design sort of protected the organization. It preserved what was. In this case, what it's going to do is going to highlight what, highlight what needs to be. It's going to protect things that matter most, its purpose, its brand, its digital core competencies. But other pieces will come and go. So the, the middle of the, the, the matrix core will be small and matrixed and silos will eventually kind of go away. Yeah, That's the building block. Yeah. And when you say um, organizations will be inherently smaller, I think what you mean is the, the number of people who actually work for the organization will be a smaller number in yes. most cases. Yes. But the total number of people working for the brand or for the company or the enterprise or to push it forward may remain the same or get bigger. It's just that they're not all going to be employees of that customer, which speaks to where we think things are going. And we're starting to see examples of this now, which is that core of the organization, which really does need to be more of a core to your, to your point and be very purposeful and, and, and culturally aligned, et cetera, et cetera. But then other pieces building on top of that. So, um, things like we, what we would call as experience as a service, right, or expertise as a service. So think of the gig economy and being able to bring in employees temporarily that bring a certain skill set because you're trying to move so fast. So you bring people in, they're able to immediately assimilate into that really strong core that you focused on, bring that expertise, and then move on to the next organization or the next opportunity, um, and, and so it becomes much more fluid and the definition and the boundaries of what really is the organization changes. It morphs. It's shape-shifting, as you mentioned. Yeah, it becomes multifaceted in terms of uh, type of people um, and the level of skill that they bring and the, the sort of tasks that they're working on, whether those are strategic or, or lower level. Right. I mean, if, if you're a company that's trying to move at the speed of your customers and the speed of digital innovation and so forth, um, it's just not really realistic that you would have the same, all of the people working towards that effort are going to remain the same. Um, you've got to bring in new skills and move them out. Um, 
And by the way, that's not just because that's what's good for companies. It's good for people, too. I mean, we're starting to see more and more folks out there in the workforce that like this idea of really mastering a particular skill and be able to bring it to multiple companies. Um, it, it just gives them more satisfaction with their job overall. I, I think one thing that's interesting here um, when you touch on that is the generational component. So we talk a lot about the differences in baby, boom, baby boomers versus millennials and how they have totally different working styles. But I think what's interesting here is expertise as a service brings these two together to work in, in the same sort of way with totally different driving forces. So baby boomers might be looking at trying to uh, decrease their hours, but they still are operating at a very high skill level. So something like the gig economy would be interesting to them. On the flip side, we have millennials who tend to be more interested in uh, diver diversifying their skills, getting more experiences at different companies. So working in something like the gig economy would appeal to how they prefer to, to operate and work. Yeah, I think a key premise of this is that we continue to think of organizations as jobs that sort of collect into an organization, job descriptions that sort of collect into a function. And these are really tasks. And to your point, Sharon, which is the tasks, the requirements of the task will change over time. So therefore, the requirements of the skill will change over time. So the experts coming and going creates a extremely optimized, fluid environment because I'm getting what I need when I need it. And when I don't need it anymore, it goes away. It's, it's sort of optimal to the organization that's highly dynamic. That's right. So you could, I mean, you could think of those as tasks. You can think of them as roles. And 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 to your point, I, they may go away um, because the person goes away, but they also just may go away and then that person takes on a new role. So I think it happens with the internal kind of matrixed core as well. That we get less attached to a job description equals a person um, and a person who could fill multiple roles and who could change those roles over time and be much more fluid. Um, it's a win-win scenario, quite frankly. So I'm going to talk about the relationship between the expert and the core. If I have people coming and going, and I don't have a strong culture that's easily assimilated to, I do create chaos. Um, this is, so going back to what you said earlier, organizational design and culture have to work hand in hand here, because you almost have to have a culture that operates as Velcro which is it pulls people in, it quickly lines them up so that you don't have that churn factor of how does it really work? What do you guys really value? That has to be something that's borderline instinctual to the coming and going of people. That's a high calling for the core at this point in time. Yeah, and this is where we get into things like um, what people would refer to as sort of a purpose-driven organization, and um, a lot of folks are talking about this at the moment. But at the, at the essence of that is you have – employees and particular millennials and so forth coming into the workforce that 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 means a lot to them right for for working for somebody working for an organization who has a very well stated and backed up purpose that is beyond just driving revenue up um, quite frankly and then on top of that if we go to this world where you've got employees coming in and out that purpose has to be very loud and clear. I mean, it, it, it's, it's why I think a lot of organizations are starting to think now and looking at values-based ba values marketing and things of that nature where the definition of the organization becomes much clearer um, and, and what their purpose is in the broader world. There's a certain amount of empowerment that has to come along with this, right? So if you have 
this combination of the strong core and then you have folks coming in from the gig economy and elsewhere um, empowering people to make decisions and operate uh, with the mission or culture in mind is a really big component of this. Otherwise, everybody's still waiting to be told what to do, right? That's right. Um, and we've if we've gotten there a bit, I feel like we've most organizations have moved the needle on, I mean, we're not talking about most companies being a situation where they're just this control and command uh, kind of hierarchy and all the decisions are made at the top and nobody, you know, everybody, nobody questions that everyone just executes blow. Most organizations have evolved to give their employees at least a feeling of empowerment to some degree. Um, The problem is in a lot of those organizations, because they haven't changed anything else, what that creates then is this world where this organization where everything is driven by consensus building and everyone feels like... Or by habit. Or by habit. Yes. And, and that, can draw out decision cycles too. And when the whole goal here is to be able to move more quickly, be more agile, it doesn't really work. So that combination of empowerment is good. But um, I think when we start talking about these types of organization and the fluidity, a lot of folks think of that or translate that into, oh, well, these organizations are not going to have any structure. You know, they're they're just going to be chaos. Um, And that's probably the farthest from what I think will happen. I mean, I think the organization of the future will actually have a lot of structure to it. It'll just be a very different structure than what we're used to so that folks can free up creativity and and move a lot more quickly. I think the other part of this equation is not people, but technology. So we're at a place in time where the use of robots, the use of AI decisioning has the potential to fundamentally alter the nature of the organization because it's no longer enabling a person kind of is the person. I mean, you're outsourcing digitally, if you will. What do we see as the role of robots and AI in this core? Because it would, I assume it would be part of the core. This is part of the core competency or poor, core personality of the firm. Yeah, I, I think this is a really good point. I mean, robots are definitely part of the future, <laughs> the future of the workforce. Um, I think the uh, they will take on me today. We're already seeing them take on some of the pretty predictable, kind of clear-cut roles, of course. Um, but as they uh, mature, um, we're going to see them taking on a lot more in the organization. And in fact, I think we'll start to see organizations start to think through, and, and a core skill will be, can you work side-by-side side with a robot um, as, as a person and employee for the organization? So, I, I you know, some of the most probably tenured uh, employees at a company going forward will be robots um, in a lot of ways. And I, and I think that's a good thing. It, it hopefully then allows more roles, different roles, more creative roles for a lot of people within an organization. The, the AI piece is interesting, too. I think there's another angle to that, which is um, AI will be very involved in sort of the decisioning and optimizing the workforce or the different roles, right? So making some of the decisions on who needs to come together for these teams that sort of spin up and then and then dissolve when they're not needed. Um, optimizing that is, at scale at least, is going to be really hard. Unless you're a small organization, let's face it, that's going to be hard for one leader to do. So I think AI will play a really strong role in that. Um, and we're already seeing that with very very people-intensive companies. Think of the agency's world, um, publicists just recently announced, you know, their partnership with Microsoft to build Marcel, which is just that, right? The beginning of an AI platform to optimize bringing their key creative talent together across all sorts of different agencies and different geographies to produce the most effective team possible for a time that then will be dispersed. 
it's to me it's part of the orchestration of the firm. We typically think of orchestration as a leader's role. And now I think what you're pointing at in AI is AI is a piece of the orchestration because it creates from machine learning, other things and other insights it's gathering, what people should do. It begins to be the orchestrator. People are working on behalf of AI in this construct in some ways. Yeah, what people should do and who should work together. I mean, I think there's ironically a very human aspect to it as well, right? Which personalities will work best together? How do you kind of cast a, a team that's going to produce the best result based on their skill sets, of course, but also how they work um, and how they interact with other folks? So I think one of the things this solves that has been hard goes to your earlier point, Sharon, which is these cross-functional teams form because it's necessary to represent the entire enterprise. It's represent to overcome the high wall silos that you brought up earlier, Ali. The problem is they have far too little political capital, that the inertia and entrenched power of those hierarchies is far too large for, the, for them to really make progress. They just keep on bumping and bumping. This structure actually unleashes that full potential in these teams. This structure is those teams taking on the most important tasks possible. So the organization is always working on the most important thing, representing the purpose of the organization on behalf of the customer versus bumping into the hierarchies. That's right. And and so then the question is, what is the most important thing, right? Um, and so that's why we're seeing many of these cross-functional uh, teams pop up and be organized around things like customer journeys, for example. Um, that's probably the most relevant example. You see it with digital and so forth as well. But I think the customer journey is probably the one that's the most important and the most effective, quite frankly, at the moment. But to your point, that maybe that's the dominant organizing principle of that matrix going forward with the functional being the, su the subordinate to that one. And we see companies um, clearly experimenting with this today and pushing it further and further and further. But to your point, then you get to that point of, okay, so when does it just flip? When, when is that the dominant structure um, and combined with the idea that everyone accepts that the structure will change and it'll be different? I want to build on the comment about journeys because companies at some level assume that the journey begins and ends with them. So if I look forward three to five years and look at mobility as a service, mobility as a normal environment, so the idea that car ownership is the, a minority reality and people are just doing ride sharing, the journey goes well beyond the automaker, goes well beyond who's actually providing the entertainment, who's providing the logistics. The journey goes from the human being's beginning of the journey of the day to the end. Companies can't cover that waterfront. So I imagine that a key to the success of any company is to start thinking horizontally, not vertically, not in the function or silo, what do I do? But how does a human cross over? And so how do I participate in that horizontal journey that goes well beyond what I do as a company? Yeah, I mean, this is this hits right at the idea of ecosystems. I mean, it, it's a it's a pretty significant mind shift for organizations when they think about the, their, their own existence, right? Their, their whole sort of vision and purpose of the company from the lens of the customer. Um, and if you really think of it from that perspective and you start to think about those journeys, you can very quickly stitch together an ecosystem that is based on the customer's lens, not the organization's lens. Um, and this speaks to the, again, the fluidity of the organization. So if you're taking that perspective, now all of a sudden thinking about how different partners can play certain roles, as we talked about earlier, rather than just employees in your own organization, um, it just takes that to a whole new level that we haven't had before. 
And I, th- and I think we contemplate it, but we contemplate it in, in a sort of an, an aged way. So we had Michael Facemar on, you know, about a year ago. And part of what he was talking about is I want to take a trip. He was in San Francisco. He wanted and he realized that I have to do the hotel, the cab, yeah. the airline, the this, the that. And each of them had their own app, their own context, their own ID, their own rewards program. So he was forced to engage them on their terms each time. And there's really no natural human orchestration. This is really a comment about that the ecosystem should solve that so it's easier for everyone to sort of participate in a pretty predefined basis kind of thing. Yeah. And so then the question is, is there an intermediary that does that or do some of the biggest players already in those ecosystems step up to do that? And I think we'll see a combination of both. But success is predicated on that ability to see it through the lens of the entire ecosystem and create that complete journey for your customers. So let's add this up because we just painted a kind of a, a different picture. We painted an organization that is highly purposed at its core, um, strong cultures, strong sense of what needs to be in core. What is your core competency? What is really not your core competency? What do you have to own? A sense of Velcro that allows people to come and go. Clarity of tasks that often can be decided by AI in terms of building teams, what needs to be done, that type of thing. And this, this vibrant ecosystem of human beings and possibly robots that come and go based upon what's most important at that very moment, which, you know, in this market will change on a constant basis. That's a very different organizational design principle. It is. 100%. Very different, which goes back to the risk issues of how do you get there from where you are now and who's going to take that big leap. So who's really doing this well today? Well, I, I don't think we could point to anybody who who's lived up to that vision because, to Victor's point, that that's a big, broad vision. But there's uh, there are companies that have taken a pretty uh, aggressive step to completely change things. So Zappos is a great example of really embracing um, something called holacracy, which is a completely different way of of operating as an organization, and it does break down the hierarchical barriers and so forth. Um, much more fluid teams, things of that nature. So it's pieces of this for sure. Um, You've got companies, more quote-unquote traditional companies like a Patagonia who's obviously really embraced the the purpose-driven and the, you know, the values-based component of the organization and then also driven that all the way through their culture to to uh, to really improve the operations and, and operate in a way that is very customer-led and fluid and dynamic. Um, but piecing together all those pieces, you know, the, the AI platform for decisioning, bringing robots in, really embracing kind of gig employees. Um, I, I don't think we can point to anybody who's really doing all of those pieces together, which is why it's a bit of a future vision for sure. But I do think it's, it's a sign of the times that people are already experimenting and those companies that are trying it are proving to have levels of success. There's a sort of sense of doability here so that it's not as if the first experiments failed widely which sort of encourages people to stay put. I mean, this is sort of encouraging people to to take the next steps along the way. That's right. And I think it's it's encouraging, um, it's giving some confidence to leaders who actually can make these decisions too, right? I, I do think, I mean, we joke that, oh, the millennials are the ones who, who have a conscious and can care. And, yeah, and you those, do joke about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and others that have been around a little bit longer don't and just care about control and stability. It's obviously not that black and white. And I, I think this is um, the fact that there are organizations that are experimenting in, in that aggressive of a manner is giving some confidence to, to leaders and organizations to kind of really take a step back and 
and listen to more of their own inner core of of how to shift things and do things um, uh, in a very different way that is going to benefit their end customers, which of course then benefits them as an organization, their employees, um, and and drive success for for everyone. It almost feels like this was something that startups we're playing around with. And now many of those startups have grown up a bit. You mentioned Zappos. I would think of them as sort of in that category. And so now more established organizations are sort of looking at those companies who are uh, driving disruption, pleasing customers, and driving the bottom line and thinking, oh, okay, like they've grown up. I think it's okay to, to get in here now. I think that's right. The only caveat I would say to that is they also can at times be dismissive because it feels like, and they're 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 right, really, that a lot of those organizations started with a blank sheet of paper. It's a lot easier to do this with a blank sheet of paper mm-hmm. than an established company who's brought in revenues and profits for shareholders um, for decades <laughs> and say, we're going to blow that up and we're going to change something different. So this is one scenario of what an organization may look like, and it's pretty far-reaching. What are the pieces of evidence that this is starting to take place? Well, Ali mentioned one, right, of seeing companies uh, experiment with this and go on record that it's being po- it's positive and so forth. So, so that's kind of the obvious one. But I think there's little smaller nuanced kind of things that we'll start to see. So on the point around um, expertise as a service, um, I think you'll start to see more interest in uh, learning. Um, so, and I don't think it'll be traditional learning. I mean, obviously, university-based programs will exist and they'll continue, but um, I would expect that there'll be a lot more demand to drive at specific skills, right? If if that's the way you succeed because you're kind of kind of going in and out of companies based on a really strong, deep set of, of expertise in a particular area, um, we'll start to see an explosion in micro-learning, for example, right? So, um, training programs that you can tap into on a daily basis or even during a coffee break, for example, um, to hone new skills or build new skills for your next gig, if you will. I think that's a big space um, for sure. And then linked to that, of course, is the the kind of gig hiring world. Um, we obviously see uh, a good number of sort of networks um, for gig employees out there today, but I think that that will continue to boom. We'll start to see more and and probably more importantly, we'll start to see some of the bigger players get into this space um, as the workforce goes in this direction. And there's a precedent for this, which is, you know, if you turn to a management consultant who's going from gig one to gig two, as a as a transition, they're doing micro learning. I mean, this is a premise of getting up to speed as fast as you bloody well can to what the next big challenge is, whether that's a context is the industry, the firm, the task, whatever it might be. I mean, this is not a foreign thing. This is just something that's done in a specific pocket that will be done in a broader scale. Yeah, it'll go more mainstream. It'll be done at scale. And therefore, there'll have to be more outlets to do it right. You know, management consulting world, you may um, uh, go spend a week with another consultant who's done that thing and, and just kind of cram for it to learn it. Now there'll be other ways to really tap into real education, but in bite-sized chunks. And your point on gig, which is, I was going to insert the word Rolodex and realize that would have pinned me down. It's a thing. Trust me. It's a thing. But there are networks like Tongle, Zupa, and Freelancer Upstart that have already formed, that have already built this capability so people can tap in rapidly to it. The question is, do they succeed or does the next one come up? Or do the management consultant houses or outsourcers move much more towards 
I can bridge you to freelancers and others, and I'll be sort of an orchestrator in behalf of and it. It may change the role of agencies, management consultants, others that have typically played a whole sort of, I'll take on this whole thing versus I'm going to be sort of a, 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 a talent, a broker, talent yeah. broker for you. Yeah, I think that's right. We talked about the role of technology and not just technology as enablement or something like that, but technology as the entity sitting to my right or to my left who's telling me what to do. What do we, what do we see as key evidences that that's becoming normal? Oh, goodness. Uh, I mean, there, there, this is probably the hottest topic <laughs> that we get inquiries from our clients on at the moment um, is automation, robotics, RPA, uh, you name it. And it's all obviously interrelated with AI, of course. Um, so there's definitely a desire there. I think it's just such a future world. So I think the, 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 the evidence we'll be looking for is um, when companies start to really assess their own staff um, on their ability to work with robots. Um, when they start looking at overall as a company, um, how ready are we for, for this? Um, thinking of things um, at Forrester, we talk about the robotics quotient, right? hand in hand with sort of EQ is RQ, um, your ability and your readiness to understand and interact with robots. This um, is not being tech savvy. This is not like you've been able to master that app. No. This is different. <laughs> Very different, <laughs> yes. It's, it's understanding sort of how robots process information, right, and, and what they do with it, and then being able to complement that in a very effective and, and smooth and fluid way. So the picture we're painting is organizations that are paying close attention to the outside market, that are focusing heavily on being as nimble as they need to be. So what is the rest of that sentence is, Therefore, they're not optimized to quarterly results and they're not optimized to stability. That will frustrate or that is different than the way boards and shareholders think of companies, notably public companies. How does that relationship change? <laughs> really good question. And I think this is where it gets pretty sticky. We've been talking so far about internally to the organization. Um, shareholders is probably the most interesting one to me because I think there is such a conflict of interest there. Um, I mean, in theory, the shareholders are there because they want long-term growth and success, which is, if you make this change, you should get there. But it also probably means some short-term, um, uh, hopefully not losses, but but not gains, right, or, or just a transition period um, that many shareholders may just not have the patience for. I mean, it's not what they signed up for. So I, I think there will be a struggle there. Um, we do hear, you know, as evidence of this, we do hear from organizations who have embraced some of these concepts and shift in this direction, they'll say things like, well, it helps that we're private, you know, um, because it gives them a little bit more latitude. So, I, you know, I do think that we'll probably see more than a few firms um, either resist going public or or even take the organization private uh, during a transition. Yeah, I think there's something learnable. I hate to bring up the A word in this, this podcast, but there's something learnable about that firm from the West that is not optimized to margin. That's right. And how much it has freed up growth. That's right. Um, there's something to be learned from that. Absolutely. So taking stock in this organizational design done well unleashes the full potential of human and digital capital. I mean, I'm putting digital capital there on purpose. In the service of the purpose of the firm, which is going to have to get refreshed and honed to gain real strategic advantage in a market that's extremely fast-moving and inherently disruptive. So what does it mean to boards and CEOs that are looking at their organization and looking at 
possibly the struggles they're having making real change? What does it mean to them in terms of taking stock and what they need to do over the next one to three years? So I think the I think the question here is not if it's it's when um, you know if we push out um, even five ten years out I think uh, most organizations will look pretty different than they do today. Um, so it's it's going to happen, um, but the question may also be who's going to do it, who's going to lead that change, um, and and so as a leader of an organization, I think you have to ask yourself: Are you up for it? You know, are are you up for pushing for that kind of change? Um, because if you're not, quite frankly, it's going to become a survival game. And so then it's going to be a question of bringing somebody else in who who is willing to take that risk because maybe they don't have as much um, time built up uh, within the organization and they don't have as much success being all based on control and stability. They're willing to take a chance. Um, and so if you're not, somebody else will. This was a really cool conversation. Thank you, Sharon. And also thank you, Ali, for joining us on this great podcast. Thanks. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more on the future of organizations, download our complimentary white paper at forrester.com slash future of orgs. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash future of orgs. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.